Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. This conversation, entitled Women Leading the Way in Opera, was recorded in front of an audience following an LA Opera performance of Eurydice by Matthew O'Coin and Sarah Rule, and was part of the countywide Eurydice Found Festival. It features singers Danielle Denise, Rayanne Bryce Davis, and producer Beth Morrison being interviewed by musicologist Dr. Christy Brown Montesano. The whole idea behind this panel was to talk about women moving opera forward and what their roles are in it as we go forward and a lot of the changes that have already happened, not least with all the work you've done. Beth Morrison projects have been going since 2006. Yeah, 2006. So you've already seen some changes in that time, which I'd love to hear about. I'd also like to hear about how did you start, like from the singer saying, I want to be in the producer's place. I want to actually begin to generate some of this artistry and be in charge of it. Sure. First of all, it's so lovely to be here with all of you and to be here with LA Opera, which has really been a home for Beth Morrison Projects and our work over the last five years. We do a lot of work on their off-grand series. We're in our ninth production with them this year. We'll be doing Angel's Bone this spring, May 1st and 3rd at the Broad Stage. And then next year we'll be doing uh, a world premiere of Du Yun's work in Our Daughter's Eyes, which is a one-man show for Nathan Gunn. So it's a thrilling partnership and one that I'm so proud to be a part of. It's just very joyful to be able to create work here in Los Angeles. I have a lot to say on the topic of women in in opera. As you said, uh, I've seen an enormous amount of change over the last 14 years since my company was founded in 2006. We also have a festival called the Prototype Festival, which we founded eight years ago, which takes place in New York City and is a vehicle for contemporary chamber opera and music theater works that are meant to tour around the world. My company, Beth Morrison Projects, is a bi-coastal company. The staff is based in Brooklyn. We have an outpost here in Los Angeles. I spend a lot of time here. I love Los Angeles and feel that there's a really wonderful appetite for new work here, which is terrific. And obviously, congratulations to LA Opera for this extraordinary world premiere tonight on the main stage. So when I started in the business, first of all, yes, I was a singer. I was a voice teacher. I trained, did graduate school in both. And I was living in Boston at the time. I was working with the Boston University Tanglewood Institute. And I was seeing opera in Boston, in the schools, the professional companies there. And I just felt that the art form was stagnant and that what I was seeing wasn't energizing me as a young person at that time and that it didn't speak speak to me. And I was really interested in trying to shake up the art form and the industry. And so I decided to found my company and make it a company for living composers to work with primarily emerging composers, but also some very mid-career successful ones as well, and to give them a space to experiment and learn how, how this art form works. It was kind of a bold mission. This is sort of a long way of getting to my place as a woman in the field and, and founding my own company. When I was 
you know, getting out of graduate school, I went back to graduate school, I went to the Yale School of Drama to um, figure out how to found my company. And when I was getting out, and I was sort of, you know, knew I was going to found my company, but I also needed to pay my bills, and that wasn't going to happen right away. Um, so I was thinking, you know, what kind of company I'm going to work for. And at the end of the day, there was no company that existed that would give me an opportunity to be a curator. And so it just more, you know, enforced again that I needed to do my own thing. And, you know, one of the kind of transformative moments for me as a student was when I met Joe Melillo, who was at that time the executive producer at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, one of the major presenting houses in the country. And he told me that I needed to meet the women in the field. He said, you know, this really still is a man's field, and you need to meet the women who are the pioneers. And so I spent time doing that and really understanding that the reason that women like myself have to found our own companies is because we're not given the opportunity to be the creative curator, the artistic voice. We're right. very often given the management, right, the executive director right, position. Right, right. But the artistic director position very often um, goes to the man. And, right. and in this field, that is absolutely true. Yes. Um, so I had to start my company. There, otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to be an artistic curator in, in this arena. And it's definitely th that underline on artistic. There are a lot of women working in leadership positions in opera, and you do see that, but there are a couple areas. The production artistic side of it and really driving what is the mission of an institution, what kind of works, who you're working with, and looking even at your productions, one of the other side that's often tied to artistic, of course, is musical direction. And a lot of times in a house, most of the people that are directing the music are also men. So this is another area where you don't see, I don't know, who were the women you were meeting early on that really gave you an idea of what the scene was and, and that you could learn from? Well, there are a number of women who were producers not working in opera, but working in theater and music and other, other areas. The one who was really my mentor was Linda Brumbach, who brought Einstein on the beach here. Right. And I learned how to tour work by working with her, and she took me under her wing. And she founded her company over 20 years ago and is still going strong. And it's hard. Being an independent is hard. Hard. I mean, there's no structure, you know, there's no support system. I started my company by myself. I was by myself for six years. Now we're nine full-time people and we're touring work all over the world, which is really exciting, but it doesn't seem to really get easier. No, you having know? your own business, I think in general, it's, and in the arts on top of yeah. that, that's, it's a huge challenge. And we have a really amazing person about to join us. Danielle Denise. So Beth and I have been talking about her company and what led her to move from her background as a singer, vocal coach, into production and the challenges there. So this is something we could also wrap into people who are on the stage and also your feelings of how things have changed and where you feel that you have some empowerment in the artistic I think, decisions, who you've worked with, where you see women who have really helped you, that you've seen working in different aspects of the operatic world. 
It's quite a loaded question. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I will try to answer parts of it. I actually got quite embroiled with the press in England because I made a television show for the BBC on forgotten female composers. And, you know, one of the things that is surely true is that uh, you cannot be what you cannot see. So in terms of looking for role models backwards in time, there were so few female composers, for right. example. And so all of the perspectives of women and how they are depicted come from a male gaze. And I actually don't have a problem with that at all because... I, I've had the opportunity to play so many wonderfully realized roles. Handel wrote character after character that are so richly drawn. So I really don't um, think that only women can portray women. But I think that the female gaze is so important as well. And it's been so overlooked. And at the time that I made this film, the whole Me Too thing was coming out and the BBC was also facing a lot of backlash for having only male, older, Caucasian people in top jobs. And uh, I was continually asked about this. And I, my response is the same as it was back then, which is that I've never felt that shining a spotlight on women and their passions and their stories and their examples that they set for the women of today should take away from men or say that what men have done has been uh, in any way invalidated. I think that that's a kind of easy press angle to take that when women are empowering themselves, what we're saying is men suck. And I just don't agree with that. And also, I think when we're talking about, you know, having a seat at the table, I think what we're saying is give us a chair to pull up next to you rather than let me replace you for that opportunity. So, you know, some of the arts organizations, they have made these initial strides in trying to re, as it were, equalize mm -hmm. um, the proportions, uh, for example, of women composers versus male composers. And those initiatives are necessary. I mean, it, it, it is a somewhat unfortunate that, um, for example, I was talking with Marin Alsop, the conductor, and she said she constantly gets asked, you know, what is it like to be a female conductor? Yes. And she's like, I'm a woman. So, I mean, I just want to be seen as a conductor. I don't want to be seen as a female conductor. Yeah, the composers say that as well. They yeah. want to just be called yes. composers. Exactly. Why do you have to label them a female composer? Totally. And, um, and so this is something that, I mean, these initiatives have to happen at first in order to open the doors and let people in. And, you know, I, I hope that people won't feel that the giving of these opportunities is a gratuitous thing where the person feels they haven't earned it because they only got it because they're a woman yeah. and they need to fill a quota. But it is necessary to start somewhere in order to allow these current role models to be the set for the future and that will re replicate and replicate and replicate. Yeah, I think it's important to say that it's not about taking away from anybody, it's about adding, and it is time for women to have a moment, and I think yes. we are having a moment now, and I think a lot of times things follow the money, like industry trends follow the yes. money, right? So there have been these grants that have been funded by the Toulmin Foundation, which is a foundation that is devoted to women in the arts, and other areas as well, and America puts out these grants that are for women composers to apply themselves to in order to get money for putting on their own workshops and development, and then also for the production companies who are members of Opera America to put in production grants. And right. so it's an encouraging thing when money is scarce 
for the industry then to look and, and say, okay, great, like we can put in for this grant. Now who are the great women who we should be working with that maybe have been overlooked in the past? And right. you know, maybe that's too bad that it takes the money, but I think that's just the reality. And I also think that the more women that come into leadership roles, the more ability we have to make decisions. And now we, we have, have our Rand other co our wonderful Stone, who is now, she has been back in her original form, no longer stony. Indeed. You are here. Welcome, Ran. We're in the conversation. We sent out also some questions to let everybody know. Just talking about uh, women in leadership positions, artistic positions, creative positions, because that's another where we get in opera. And... You know, the money has always been there. The fact is, is money was always important for male composers as well. So it's not like a special perk that you're getting for women composers. I've often felt with opera, the problem in terms of historical context and, and canon is that operas were very big and very expensive works. So unless you had they a lot are. of... <laughs> right, and they still are. So unless you had a lot of support and a certain reputation, you could write all the operas you wanted as a male composer, and it, they weren't going to be staged. So what we have as a, a, what we call the canonic works, the ones that are routinely brought over, and again, they're just mostly male. You can find more representations of works that are smaller chamber works. Uh, sometimes you'll get a symphony or a concerto, a lot of songs or choral works by, by women composers of the past. But opera, it's very rare that you find an opera composed by a woman that you can look and kind of build a tradition that was consistent. It was societal as well. So men were also following the way in which society treated women with talent. So for example, even Clara Schumann, who yeah. was a composer, she was totally conditioned to think that it was almost silly of her to even have dreams of composing. And as a pianist, she was so talented, but even her own father said, well, you know, don't don't train it. You know, they viewed that talent as a sort of anomaly in a, in a woman. And so they went, well, just leave it alone. It must be some divine thing. So we have a, a whole society that doesn't recognize the possibility. And that's why any work that they produced was largely ignored. Yeah. Um, Ellen Reed, who I'm sure everybody I knows. I was thinking of, yes. Um, uh, we did her world premiere of Prism last year with LA Opera, and she won the Pulitzer for that. And one of the things that she said about the process in working with a female producer was that she didn't have to prove herself when she got in the room. She just had to work. Yeah. And I thought that was a really important sentiment to be sort of shared with the industry. Yeah, it's interesting. This, I don't know why this, you know, thinking about you just have to work. And this is a really strange personal anecdote, so excuse me. But I, I just have this flashback as I'm sitting here. Actually, when they announced my name, which was kind of surreal. When I was an undergraduate, and I, I was also a singer. So my instrumental training, the musician was a singer. And I went to the chairperson of the department, and I, I said, hey, I'm, I'm kind of interested in maybe doing something more. Maybe I'd like to do musicology, or I don't know. I'm looking at possibilities. And at that time, he turned to me, and he said, well, oh, yeah, you have good grades. I can see you being the girl on TV announcing the opera, mm. 
which now seems kind of ironic, because um, I'm kind of here. But you realize that that conditioning wasn't just, my point is that this wasn't just a 19th century thing. This wasn't just an early 20th century thing. I mean, I'm older, but I'm not, you know, it's not centuries old. Um, uh, sometimes I feel it, but that's, so this idea that, you know, we're talking the 1980s, that this was still the way that you could talk to a young woman who was interested and talented and smart and had drive was kind of like, well, I see you as ornamentation for this world of classical music and opera. So it really is now kind of coming around. We're still asking these questions, but we're also seeing a lot of movement, not least with Ellen getting the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, I mean, it's is, amazing. And the last few Pulitzers have gone um, to women over the last exactly. five years, um, except for Kendrick Lamar. The point I just want to make, because um, I think it's an important one, as we sort of look at change in the industry, and change is slow, in my opinion, it starts at the top, right? So it is who are the women who are in the artistic decision-making positions of, in these organizations. And mostly, they don't really exist in the level one and the level twos. There are few, right. but really few and far between. And I think that that responsibility lies with the board because the board are the ones who are choosing the people in the positions and the board is looking to the search firms. And so if the search firms aren't putting forward candidates that are women and people of color, then how can the board be choosing a candidate that is in one of those categories? Right. And that may take a paradigm shift in the industry in terms of how our companies are structured. Because maybe there isn't somebody from an, another level one company, because except for Francesca Zambello, right, there aren't exactly. any, like that would be able to take over. So then what if it's a paradigm shift where it's like, okay, we're gonna actually do an executive director, a general director, and an artistic director. And what if that artist director is Ellen Reed. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe right. there's a different paradigm that the industry can adopt and that when women are in decision-making positions for the artistic curation, then real change is gonna happen throughout yeah. the organization. I, yeah. I completely agree. And it's very interesting that we can talk about it so philosophically, but it's happening actively in different countries. Like the UK made the Europe's decision. Europe's doing great, actually. Yeah, yeah. The, yes. um, the UK has decided to make 30% of all of the women on the Financial Times Stock Exchange women. And that's an active decision that you right. have to make, like you're saying. And they made that decision, they made that pact that they were gonna do it, and they met that goal ahead of time, a year ahead of time. So 30% are women, and I think that's amazing. Like, you have to be intentional about it, yes. and then make it happen. Absolutely. It does have to be a decision where this is actually the world. I mean, these are the people working in it. It's right. not like it's changing what we would normally find, as I even look out at our audience It's today. not a less than. It's not right. a less than. It's just acknowledging that it's a pretty rich community that's right. interested in opera, pretty rich community that's been educated, trained, active, interrogating, creating opera. But once you get to those tier one and tier two companies, 
especially, it begins to shrink in terms of kind of representation in general. Mm -hmm. I hope so. that that will change, though, as our generation is shining a light on this. Then I think two generations from now, yes. I think it'll just become the norm um, in the way that with a lot of social movements, at first, they hit hard and heavy and, and the pendulum sort of swings, you know, quite strong and then it eventually settles and everybody accepts it as the new norm and hopefully that will be the case for more women in the arts um, and already there are so many wonderful women in the arts who are doing great things and you know I mean we are in the arts and the arts is a the arts is a place where it is the last place where your talent and your what you have to offer as a human being can sometimes trump people's barriers of color of race of whether you look right. the part of whether you're tall enough you know whether you know what you give as an artist we have a better shot than most at transcending all of those barriers and it's wonderful as you say that in the workplace that they are making those goals. And the proms as well, the BBC proms has made a huge initiative to have more women composers. And, and librettists. Yeah. I mean, yes. composers, it's wonderful to hear the, the music, but it's the librettists that truly dictate the story that's being told. That's right. And yeah, it's so wonderful to have Sarah Rule, like one of the best female playwrights, <laughs> you know, um, best playwrights in the in the country, right. you know, and like that that's the that's the work that's being chosen to be the world premiere for LA Opera and the Met, like that says a lot, right? Absolutely. And Sarah and Mary did you know incredible work together. They really worked so harmoniously to realize Sarah's vision, but also t to give Mary the leeway to interpret because mm -hmm. one needs to interpret the text it cannot be I mean otherwise unless the librettist directs it, right. it it can't be only the librettist's vision it has to be left in the hands of the creators to to give it life and right. and that was such a great process for us in the room we were very very inspired and happy to always be giving 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 and you know sometimes you might think that where there have been less women directors or women librettists that that once in that coveted spot that they would be kind of going, no, now I'm going to hold on to this and make sure that my voice is heard. And that would be completely understandable. Right. Um, and I've worked with, I've worked with a few female conductors who are from another time, but mm -hmm. they are, they're, I remember one, she was just very, very hard. She was like a female muti, you know, she was so hard. And then it turned out she was really nice, but at first she just needed to go, mm -hmm. I'm the powerful person right. here, you know, to sort of, assert herself and I, I thought back to you know what age she might have started conducting and what society was like right, at that time and it must I mean have been so impossible to be recognized as a brain as a thinker as yes. an artist we had a closing question which is the change that we would like to see going forward I know that briefly I'm still very interested in how we're going to deal with the canonic repertoire because it's great to have new operas and new librettos and new that, but we still have a lot of operas where women either, I just saw little women with a bunch of my female students today, which was fantastic, but when they were saying, no, you gotta write a story, and if she doesn't get married, she can die, but it's gotta be one or the other. Mm. And I was thinking, yep, that would be the opera. So for my side, I would like to see new stagings, new interpretations, a little bit of creativity toward kind of the sacrosanct canon, but I'd like to hear from the three of you, what are some changes that you would like to see going forward in the next few years? I'd love to share a quick story. Yes, please. I had an amazing experience in Vienna working with this female German director named Tatiana Gurbaka. And she is this very German powerhouse, like you were saying. <laughs> but we were doing a ring cycle 
And we all know Wagner is, you know, about as problematic as they come. <laughs> yep. And, you know, the story that he was trying to tell was one that was very chauvinistic and very Aryan and very, you know, connected to very backwards things. And she did, I was one of the Rhine maidens, and it's normally a scene where the Rhine maidens are these like flighty, yeah. oh, oh, here we are. Oh no, Alberich came and took our gold. Oh no. <laughs> and she created this scene that was three powerhouse women. We were in huge combat boots. We were in the mud. And anytime you would move too daintily, she was like, no, you are strong women. So that's a way, absolutely. So that's yeah. a way with the canonical right, right. repertoire Working that can still be relevant and that can still create, reflect the strong women that we have in society on our stages. I think that brings a really great point, which is for these war horses of the repertoire that they're not going away, right? No. And they shouldn't go away. So how do we treat misogynistic writing? Put a female director on the project. Mm -hmm. yeah. Let them interpret it. I, that was like the best example you could have given. Mm -hmm. Some of the pieces date themselves, you know, um, as we progress as a society, you know, I, I saw the magic flute um, earlier this summer and I just kind of went, wow, <laughs> there's some yes. really dated concepts in there. Good grief. And, um, and a male director had decided to turn the three ladies into suffrage um, campaigners. And so, and it, you know, actually really worked. And mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I think I'd love to see that um, we find a way to recognize change, but not for the sake of change. You know, like I think that it's important that people shake the status quo and that they do it in such an authentic and genuine way that it doesn't feel sensationalist because I think mm -hmm. that also pushes people away and makes people think, oh, right, they're just trying to make a kind of statement. Um, and when it's done truly authentically and it makes sense for the text and it makes sense for the production and it's realized tier one and tier two level, by tier one and tier two level creators, be they male or female, then we can all be at this table together and not see the gender as part of that equation. So first, I would like to say these are three amazing artists, period. Thank you, all three of you, for giving your time and your talent to this great art form that hopefully will continue and be even better. Thank, Thank you, you very Richard. much Thank for joining you. us. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. <laughs>